You know, over the years, I've had a thing about weddings and, and funerals and even sermons. And that is, I've tried never to do a rerun. I, 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 can, I cannot really think of a time when I have done a rerun. And some of that is my personality, by the way. When I was at Believer's Chapel, I would preach two times, one right after the other. And even the second version of that message would change from the first. So there were no reruns in, in that sense. And by the way, if you die and I do your funeral, you get an original. You may not like it, but it's an original. <laughs> That's my promise to you. So the question is, we just read the same text that we read two weeks ago. Is this uh, the same song, second verse? Is this a, a rerun? And, and I would suggest to you that it's not really a rerun. Let's look at it as a, a second edition. And uh, the, the problem that I had two weeks ago was that it the text is lengthy enough that by the time you get through trying to explain the connection of the dots in the text, you don't really have enough time to connect the dots from the text to our life. And so I basically warned you uh, two weeks ago that I would be back on the same passage and uh, that I would be focusing on the applications. And that I will do, although I must confess, two weeks has also given me, uh, uh, in my mind, a, a better clarity of exactly what it is that the salt is. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to work my way through the text quickly and see if you uh, might possibly agree with me on that. The great confession that we saw in chapter 8 uh, from the lips of, of Peter in verse 29 is really the culmination, the consummation of the, the uh, ministry of our Lord Jesus as it demonstrate, uh, demonstrated his authority. Now think about the manifestations of the authority of the Lord Jesus that lead up to chapter 8 and, and verse 29. It starts, the gospel starts with the prophecy of Isaiah, and it's followed up by the prophecy of John the Baptist with regard to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah. In chapter 1, we have the declaration of the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In chapter 1, at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Also in chapter 1, further down... You'll notice the authority of our Lord Jesus becomes immediately apparent to those in the crowds who listen. Because in the midst of Jesus' teaching, a demonized man comes on the scene and Jesus casts out the demon. And the people say, now here is teaching with authority. <laughs> Jesus not only says big things, he does big things. And it was the underscoring then of his authority in teaching that we see early in chapter uh, 1. Then in chapter 2, Jesus goes further than that, and he says to the man lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the question is, who has the authority to forgive sins? Jesus does. And he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your bed and walk. That, my friends is authority he has authority over nature so at the end of chapter 4 and again in chapter 6 he is the one who speaks and stills the storm 
He is the one who gets into the boat and the storm ceases and they are immediately at their destination. Authority over nature. He has the authority to correct the religious experts of the day. Notice when they come to him with their accusations, he comes back and every time says, you're wrong. He says to them, it's your traditions that trump scripture, but it's got to be the other way around. It's scripture that trumps your tradition. Therefore, Jesus was not bound by their rules and he violated them. That's a symbol of his authority. And he even has the authority to set aside a command that is in the law, the command with regard to clean and unclean foods. Therefore, John, Mark 7, verse 19, he declared all foods clean. From that point on, the ceremonial laws related to clean and unclean foods has been set aside. That, my friends, is authority, and it is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to chapter 8, and Jesus says to his disciples, So who do you say that I am? Peter has finally come to the point of connecting the dots of all of those evidences of the authority of the Lord Jesus, and he says, You are the Christ. What a great revelation. He is the ultimate authority. The one the Old Testament prophets said would come. The one who is going to set down kings and rise up and establish his own kingdom. That is the one who the Lord Jesus is. But this is also the point at which the next question arises. And that is, given the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and he has all authority, what does that mean? Not only for Jesus, my friends. What does it mean for his disciples? Because they're getting pretty hopped up at this point, and their expectation level is getting higher and higher. And so they're thinking about sitting on thrones. They're talking about, as we'll see in Scripture, asking Jesus, can, can I sit at your right hand or at your left? And as our text has it, they're arguing with each other about who's the greatest. The authority of the Lord Jesus has has been run through the grid of the disciples in a way that says, because I am a follower of Jesus and he has all authority, what does that mean for me? And unfortunately, at this point, all they could think of was greatness. All they could think of was the perks of power. And so Jesus, in the remainder of the Gospel of Mark, is going to teach them what authority means for the Lord Jesus. And because it means it for him, it means it for those who will be followers of his as well. And so the argument arises, as we see in, in uh, Mark chapter 9 in our text. Uh, you saw the, the events that took place uh, earlier in the, in the, in the text. <laughs> <laughs> where the uh, disciples had a rather humbling experience, did they not? At least the nine. Uh, they, Jesus comes down off the mountain, and here you have uh, the disciples who remain are unable to cast the demon out of this guy, and it seems that they have learned or should have learned that if Jesus isn't with them, folks, they don't have any power or authority at all. And I think when he says this kind can only come out with prayer, and perhaps we would add fasting to that, 
It is prayer that is dependence upon Jesus. It is calling upon Jesus to deal with this, not just their own uh, abilities. So the great confession brings about this new and unexpected revelation of Jesus. Having said what he has said, Jesus immediately moves to the next phase of his revelation. And that is what Messiahship means for him. And then he goes on to tell his disciples in chapter 8 that it means that he is going to go into uh, unto Jerusalem. He is going to be rejected. He is going to be persecuted. He is going to be put to death and he is going to rise again. Well, Peter is not into that message at all. One, he doesn't like it for Jesus. And two, he doesn't like it for him. That's not the path that Peter thought he had chosen in following the Lord Jesus. Now again in chapter 9, Jesus speaks to his disciples privately in a house in Capernaum, away from the crowds, and he speaks of his death, but he adds that element, as you know, that he is going to be betrayed, and then he is going to be uh, persecuted, put to death, and ultimately rise again from the dead. That is troubling. Jesus is gracious, however, because in uh, chapter 9, in those first verses, he gives them a sample of the glory that is to come. Now, the message is suffering, then glory. And the disciples would rather just have glory and forget the suffering part. But what you see in the transfiguration is Jesus underscoring of the reality of the glory that will come ultimately uh, and the disciples, the three at least, are privileged to, to see that. But now we, uh, we come to this revelation of Jesus' death in our text in chapter 9. And uh, we come to what Jesus is going to say to us about true greatness. Its roots and its fruits. Now, if you haven't gone out to the uh, uh, Community Bible Chapel website, communitybible.org, uh, you should because uh, Robert Warner's sermon from last week is on there. And uh, I've already listened to it. I listened to it yesterday. It was excellent. Uh, and he made this statement. He was actually referring to something uh, John Marr had said. He said, pride and selfishness are two sides of the same coin. Pride and selfishness. So I'd like to phrase a new coin. I <laughs> just wondered if you guys would see my play on words. Okay, forget it. You guys got to wake up out there. Uh, here's my new coin. Humility and servanthood are two sides of the same coin. It's, it's the opposite of, of that truth about pride and selfishness. But humility and servitude are two sides of the same coin. And that is what our Lord Jesus is talking about in our text. Now, follow this through with me if you can. True greatness in its source. I believe that's what verses 35 through 50 are, are all about. The first thing that Jesus says to his disciples and to us is this. Greatness needs to be redefined. True greatness needs to be redefined. See, all kinds of definitions are in people's minds when you talk about greatness. You can think about power. You can think about prestige. 
You can think about prosperity. There are a large number of options that come to people's mind. And Jesus says, that's the way the Gentiles think. That is not true greatness. In God's economy, true greatness is to serve, not to be served. True greatness is to serve. True greatness is to be the servant of all. So in one sense, in God's economy, the top person on the pecking order of what God calls great is the bottom person in our society's pecking order of how greatness would be assessed. True greatness and uh, is, is, is servanthood, and therefore we must reverse our whole sense of that. Now I want you to think about this in terms of the Lord Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus is talking about the master who is gone and, and, and he's going to come back. And, and when his servants who have been faithful are ready and waiting for him and he knocks and, he, and they open the door and he comes in, he says, the master will then gird himself and will serve his servants. What he's saying is that for that master, service is greatness. That is his delight. That is his joy. That is his privilege. So often we think that servanthood is the price we pay to get to greatness. I've got to do this, pay my dues for a certain period of time. And after I've suffered long enough and paid long enough, then I get to greatness. No. The service is the greatness. In chapter 22, verses 24 through 27, Jesus is talking about the Gentiles and their sense of greatness. And he contrasts it to himself. And he says, I am among you as one who serves. That is not Gentile greatness. That is not greatness as our culture and society views it. When you look at Philippians chapter 2, Verses 4 through 7, that great text on our Lord's humility, setting aside the glories of heaven and so on. I want you to notice something particular about that. True greatness wasn't earned by Jesus, by the work that he did on Calvary. Now, there's a sense in which I think his glory is greater. But, but both in the, in the Philippians text and in the John 17 text... Jesus makes it very clear that when he prays that the Father would restore his glory, he said, it's the glory that I had with you before creation. So Jesus did not somehow work up a number of service points, so to speak, and get his badge of glory at the end. He left glory to come and serve and then was restored and renewed to that glory. But he didn't earn his glory. He left his glory because true servanthood is uh, greatness. Servanthood then is not the means to greatness. It is the expression of greatness. Now, here's where I'm varying a little bit from last uh, two weeks ago. The root of servanthood is humility. The root of servanthood is humility. 
I, I, I've been struggling. I've been thinking more about this whole business when Jesus says that you must become like a child, that you must receive a child, you must not cause a child to stumble. And, and, and I've, uh, well, anyway, I wasn't happy with myself about that. And so I began to think a bit about it. Let me tell you one reason why this imagery, which was clear to Jesus' disciples, or should have been, and to any other audience in that day, is not clear to us. And that is, children today, unfortunately, are not like the children of Jesus' day. Our children today are Mr. Rogers' children. They are special, they are wonderful, and they may sue their parents. Is, am, I, am I not right? Something has fundamentally changed. So then I look back at Galatians, and I let Paul tell me how it was uh, in his day, and that people would understand. He's talking about coming out from under the restraint, the constraint of the law, and being into the full liberty of grace. And he says in chapter 4, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. <laughs> you think that describes our culture? I don't. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. A child in those days did not have the rights in the story of the prodigal son. Even there, he had to ask for the inheritance from his father. He didn't have it until he asked for it and received it. Children were not masters. They were under slaves who were their tutors. They did not have the rights and the liberties. Now, when I come to Matthew chapter 18, it begins to make sense to me. Matthew 18, it's the parallel text. And uh, verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's not a new question. And he called the child to himself and stood him in their midst. I take it, by the way, when it says in Mark that he took the child in his arms. I'm not taking that as picking a child up and holding that child. Some of you, do you remember years ago, only your old timers are going to get this. But when a little child came down the aisle, uh, when I should have stopped and it was 12 o'clock, that child came down the aisle and came and tugged on my pants and I picked Hannah up and I held her in my arms for the last couple of minutes of the sermon, probably hastened it along a little bit. That's picking a child up. But as I understand it, Jesus is sitting down. He takes the child in his arms alongside of him. Maybe that's a little uh, less young child than we would think. But then he says, unless, in verse 3, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he, as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Ah, now I've come to the salt. What is Jesus saying in our text then when he talks about receiving a child, not causing a child uh, to, to, to stumble and whatever. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you guys are thinking up here about who is the greatest. You're thinking about your rights, your prerogatives, 
your glory. But it all starts for you on the other end. You must be humbled and become like a child. Not thinking in terms of what you possess, what is your right, but rather thinking about your dependence. Aren't, isn't that what, by the way, even on our legal forms today, what do you call kids? Well, one of the things you call them is dependence. Not independence, although many of them are, but dependence. So, Jesus is moving here, and I believe then when we come down to verse 50, I'll come back to it in a minute. When we come down to verse 50, what is it that salt does? Salt is distinct. Saltiness is distinctiveness. Humility is the salt which distinguishes Christians from other people and which facilitates growth in those who are weak and harmony with our brothers. That's what I believe the salt of our text is. Okay. The root of servanthood is humility. The fruit of servanthood is the care of the weak and the vulnerable. That's what Jesus talks about. See, the disciples are thinking in grand terms. And as I mentioned to you two weeks ago, when, when Jesus says what he says in, in, in the earlier to the scribes and the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, in the parallel text, the disciples come to him and they say to Jesus, you do know that you offended these guys. Well, who cares? They care. Because these were the power brokers of their day. They cared about powerful people. Remember, Jesus said, when you have a banquet, it's easy to invite people who are uh, powerful and affluent and have means because they're going to invite you to their banquets. You pay, you, you get. That's what some people think about Christmas. You know, you ought to get kind of a reciprocation coming back for what you've given. Jesus says, when you have a banquet, invite people who can't pay you back. Your preoccupation should be with the weak, not with the strong. With those who need your strength, not who, uh, those who can add to your strength and position and power. Fruit of servanthood is the care of the weak and the vulnerable. That's why he speaks about receiving a child. That's why he speaks about not hindering one of these little ones that believe. Those who understand leadership from the eyes of humility, think in terms of what my strength can do to someone else's weakness. That's what it's all about. And the opposite of servanthood is to hinder others and cause them to stumble. Now, I'm not doing a thorough exegesis of those texts because I did that. Hopefully, I, I did it two weeks ago, and I'm just recalling those things to your mind. True greatness and its source, as I've said, the humility is the salt which distinguishes the believer and which promotes unity among the brethren. Isn't that exactly the way Paul begins his statement in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, um, in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then he goes down and he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Humility is the key to unity. That's what Jesus said in verse 50 of Mark chapter 9. Have salt, humility in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Humility generates peace and unity. Now, that gets me to the point where I was itching to go two weeks ago. So let me say, let me take a couple of applicational pokes at this text. One, humility and the gospel. Humility and the gospel. Ooh, I am so itching to get to the story of the rich young ruler, uh, which is coming. But the reality is, arrogant people will not be saved. Arrogant people will not be saved. Remember in, in Proverbs, it talks about humility is the key to uh, wisdom. It's only people with desperate needs who come to Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the well. I came to heal the sick. So that when people come to Jesus for help, they come to him in their need, in their dependence. Here is this father in the immediate context where he's got this demonized son and he basically casts himself at Jesus' feet and says, without you, I can't do anything. The, the Syrophoenician woman, without you, Jesus, I can't do anything. Salvation starts with a deep sense of our inadequacy. Does it not? That's where it starts. We have to be humbled before we come to faith. Arrogant people don't come to Jesus and ask for a handout. Grace. They don't. So the gospel requires humility. I think that's what John the Baptist was doing in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Calling upon people to repent in preparation because they need a Savior. And then the gospel humbles us, <laughs> doesn't it? How could you ever get proud about grace? I mean, you've got all these texts which make it clear. Titus chapter 3. You know, it isn't by works of righteousness which we have done. We don't have a list of, of things, of accomplishments we present to God. It's what he has done. As somebody pointed out from Ephesians chapter 2, it is not of works lest anyone boast. There is no basis for arrogance in the gospel. Boasting, as, as the scriptures say, if anyone would boast, let him boast in the Lord. That's where salvation comes from. And our salvation should humble us every single week, not to mention every day and every hour of the week. Every single week, we ought to be reminded it is not our doing. It is His doing. And that brings humility, not arrogance, to the people of God. I, I think about Paul. 
and, and the way in which God must have dealt with his arrogance. But you, you think about his credentials. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. You know, he probably had letters after his name till the cows come home. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, after he's been saved, by the way, he's blinded for three days. It must have been tough for a proud man to be led around by the hand, don't you think? A little humbling in that, too. But Paul says, I now look back and I see all of my credentials, all of my righteousness as a Pharisee, and I count it as... Oh, go ahead. You can say it. <laughs> that stuff you put on the roses that you get in the barnyard. Done. Yes. That's what it is. Paul says, I've been humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's one that occurred to me late in the game. Humility and failure. If the gospel isn't humbling enough, God will orchestrate a little failure on your way. Peter Remember, he's the one who is no doubt in the thick of that argument about who's the greatest. Peter's going to say to Jesus, I don't care whether all the rest of these guys forsake you, Jesus. I'm with you to the bitter end. <laughs> Isn't that just another way of saying I'm the greatest? And Jesus says to him, Peter, it won't be long before you're going to deny me three times. And then he says, Peter, Satan is demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Peter, who writes about suffering and endurance, <laughs> the guy who didn't want anything to do with it. But see, God's preparation for Peter was failure. God's preparation for Peter was failure because he needed humbling, just like all of us do. He needed humbling. Here was the one that came to me as a surprise. Oh, by the way, Peter is the guy who is probably the source for Mark's material. But let's talk about Mark for a minute. Who is this Mark? This Mark is the one who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He's the one who bailed out and went home. He's the one who Paul refused to take on the second missionary journey. He's the one who was the dividing line between Paul and Barnabas so that it became Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mark. Let's you imagine that Mark must have had a certain twinge as he wrote these words about humility. <laughs> I'll bet you, Mark, if he was standing right here, he'd have said, man, humility. <laughs> I came about it the hard way. Failure. God has a way of bringing failure into our lives to make it abundantly clear. He's given the disciples a little blast of that earlier in chapter 9. They couldn't cast out the demon without Jesus. Humility in politics. I don't speak too much about politics, but I'm going to say it here and now. Isn't it interesting in Daniel chapter 4? that you'd see uh, Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He says, uh, therefore, verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. 
in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. It seems to me that what that's saying is God really requires humility and therefore concern and compassion for the weak, even from political leaders. If you read those next verses, uh, you'll realize humility is what's lacking. Look what it says. Verse 28. Now, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Who is the greatest around here? So God has him out on grass, getting low on grass, not high. Low on grass because he needs to learn Humility. He makes one of the greatest statements about the sovereignty of God you'll ever find in the Bible. So it seems to me we have to say that there is a standard that God sets by which he measures and judges those who rule. And that is power is given to protect the weak, not to abuse them. I don't know how many times politically we could see that power is used to oppress the weak and, thought occurred to me this morning, isn't that what a lot of preachers do too? Anybody who gets rich off the poor had better think long and hard about that. Those who have humility, those who understand servanthood, understand that any position of power is given to protect the weak, not to uh, victimize them. Humility and leadership. Think about this. A lot of texts begin to come together, but I was thinking about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, where Peter is talking to husbands and he says that the, the, the husbands ought to live with their wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel. This text has revolutionized the way, in Mark, has revolutionized the way I read Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. Because I come to that... Uh, in my normal mindset, and I think, okay, I got to face all these female faces out here, <laughs> and I got to try and justify why Peter calls them weaker. Do you see what happens if you have the mind of a servant, and now you view husbands in this new view of leadership? view their wives or their children as weaker vessels, their obligation is to serve them, not oppress them. So the weakness is the cause for greater mercy, greater ministry through servanthood inspired by humility. Leadership development. If we followed... If the church followed this model of servant leadership inspired by humility, we would do a whole lot better job of creating, developing new leaders. I was thinking about Barnabas. Barnabas is a man who is really unusual. Would you not agree? Now, number one, Barnabas is a guy who, who we know sold property so that he could give to the poor. He already is starting out concerned for the weak. But then he's sent by the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch 
a Gentile church, a new Gentile church. Now, a lot of Jewish folks would have said, no, thank you. I'll stay here in Jerusalem with these Jewish brothers. But it says Barnabas went there and he rejoiced greatly in their salvation. And then he's there for a while and he realizes that what these people need is they need the gift that Paul has, Saul. And so he goes and searches out Paul and brings him to Antioch to minister. And when we come to Acts chapter 13, it starts by telling us that God set apart Barnabas and Saul. And before that chapter is over, we read of Paul and his companions. Change from first chair to second chair. And my take is nobody was happy about that than Barnabas. Because a servant delights in the growth of other people. If we had that kind of servant leadership, friends, we would see leadership cropping up, in my opinion, far more than it does now when we look at other leaders as potential threats to our position as opposed to an enhancement of the gospel. Okay, here comes one of my hot potatoes. I've been uh, agonizing for a number of years now about the feminist movement within the evangelical church. And this text has caused me to think through that whole issue in a different light. When the disciples are arguing with each other about who is the greatest, what is so different about women who are arguing they ought to have positions of greatness in the church by their definition, by their definition. Does, does it not smack to you as saying, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Why are we concerned? I, I, I say this, okay. Why are we concerned as women? I'll say it for you because maybe nobody else will. Why are women concerned with what is regarded as a position of greatness in light of Jesus' definition of it. Or to put it differently, if we are striving for this place in our culture, but God says it's this place, then why are women not rejoicing that God has made them function in the area that is truly great? You see, when you look at it in that realm, God has blessed women if he's given them a position of servitude. I'm not going to argue that there's no place for women in leadership with women, whatever. I'm simply saying, if we believed this text, I don't think we'd be waving the flags and the banners and all the stuff that's going on about the evils and the injustices within the church that we've oppressed uh, women with regard to leadership. It really has other implications to this passage about caring for the weak. It now enables me to understand passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 8 a lot better. Paul is saying that some people's convictions grant them more liberty than others, right? 
But if the stronger brother has the liberty to do something which causes his weaker brother to stumble, what does the stronger brother do? He forsakes the liberty. Because his orientation, if he is thinking like this text, if he is thinking like Jesus, he surrenders strength, as it were, to weakness. He does not want to cause this brother to stumble. So all of a sudden, it's not this thing of, well, it's my right and I'm going to do it whether you like it or not. It is, I will not cause my brother, who is weaker, at least in my mind, to stumble whole new thing spiritual gifts spiritual gifts are given so that every one of us has a peculiar strength and may i say it corresponding weakness corresponding weakness isn't that a beautiful thing in the body of christ so that the body of christ if we are thinking like jesus does all of us, in whatever capacity of strength God has given to us, all of us are going about looking for weakness. To serve it, folks. Not to fix it. To serve it. That's what this text says. If we believe this text, as James says, then we ought to have a priority for the uh, orphans, the widows, the weak. The vulnerable, should we not? Those are the weak. We as a church ought to reach out as a priority to them. We as a church, moving to James chapter 2 out of James 127, we as a church ought not to give preferential treatment to those we perceive to be strong. Which raises a very interesting question in my mind. We would be perceived amongst ourselves, maybe nobody else, some of us would perceive ourselves as a church that is strong on teaching and doctrine. So here's the tension I face. As a preacher of the gospel, do I stand here and say to myself, I've got, uh, as I've had over the years, uh, professors, doctoral students at the seminary, uh, whatever class of, of students, is my job to impress them? Or is my job... To care for the weak. Us as a church. In terms of discipleship. Who do we really want to come. To CBC. Oh, a few more scholars. <laughs> a few more gifted people. Strong in those areas. Well sure. But we ought to be seeking. Seeking as a priority. Those who are. Weak. And I want to tell you, that's a question I'm going to think long and hard about. Father, we thank you for this text. And we simply ask that you might give us the mind of the great servant, the Lord Jesus. Give us a deep humility. May that bring us to the cross to cling to the provision you have made for our sins. And may the cross now give us a deep sense of humility. May we cling to you, even in the ministry we do. May we have a special care and concern for those who are weak. May we understand and pursue a path which sees service as true greatness.
in Jesus' name. Amen.